Hi, I'm Jennifer Mulholland. And I'm Jeff Shuck. We're the co-leaders of Plenty. Thanks for joining our podcast, Plenty for Everyone. Each episode, we talk with conscious leaders like you to explore abundance in work and life, fulfillment in head and heart, and ways we can all work together to make this world a better place. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our Plenty for Everyone podcast episode with one of our beloved guests, Basam Salem, who we've had the pleasure of knowing and meeting here in Park City. He is a leader, a inspirer, the CEO of Atlas RTX and founder of Mindshare Ventures. We're thrilled to spend the time with you today to explore juicy topics on leading through these incredible, poignant, powerful times of change. So welcome. We're so grateful that you're here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. Thank you. And am I correct? Is it actually Dr. Salem? You have a doctorate, do you not? It is not, I'm afraid. Don't tell my parents. Because <laughs> I'm an immigrant, you're supposed to have your doctorate. I'm an, an ABD, an all but dissertation. So I, I did a non-thesis PhD called an MPhil and ended up taking the, uh, the business route instead of uh, the academic route. To my parents' chagrin, because they, my, my dad has two PhDs and always envisioned me to be a professor. <laughs> it's impressive, nonetheless, and your list of academic achievements is at least as long as your business and entrepreneurial achievements on LinkedIn. So you're kind, thank you. One place I'll just jump on exactly what you just teed up. We were having a conversation before we started recording about everything happening in the world and how we as leaders can respond and change it. And one of the things you mentioned to us is, you know, I have a perspective being an immigrant and living in Lily White, Utah. Let's just start there. Will you share some of your story? First of all, how you came to be doing what you're doing and how you came to be living in Utah. But then I think more deeply what you did experience as a person of color and how that's informed your perspective in business and your perspective as you watch people call for racial justice right now. Oh, thanks for that, Jeff. Boom. That was a small question that will take 30 seconds. <laughs> right. You know, I, I actually came to Utah as a teenager before my 14th birthday. My parents were really responsible for making this happen. As many Americans don't know, it's actually really, really hard to come from a poor country to this country. It's, it's not like people, uh, the doors are open and you can just come. So it took many years of my parents applying to finally get student visas to the University of Utah, which is the only reason we ended up in Salt Lake City. We had never heard of Utah before. Uh, we came here in 1986 on student visas. My father and mother first starting at the U. They were already middle-aged. Uh, they were already mid-career. My mother was a successful computer engineer in Egypt, and my father was a colonel in the military and the armed forces. And this was their way of bringing their children to the West and giving us opportunity. In 1986, Utah was much less diverse, even more so than it is today, uh, especially Salt Lake City on the east side. So being a brown-skinned person 
was, I really stood out on the east side of Salt Lake City, my brother, sister, and I. We certainly didn't experience hate or anything like that, but I always felt different. I always felt like I stood out, not just because I wasn't American, not just because I wasn't Caucasian. I also wasn't uh, of the same faith. And that's enough check marks that when you're a teenager, you learn the different has to be okay because you can't change. I, can't, I couldn't change any of those variables. Even though I will tell you uh, one story that means a lot to me is that the fact that my parents, when we immigrated here, said, kids, we want you to feel like this is your new home. Adopt this. You need to integrate. Uh, we, we don't come here just to hold on to our roots and traditions. We need to adopt and take on these American roots and traditions. And I think this was one of the things that I sort of regret, but it was necessary, and that was to take on Western Christian names, because that would make us fit in. So I picked Mark from a TV show I really liked, Patrick Duffy, Mantle Atlantis, if you're in, <laughs> nice. you remember that show. <laughs> My brother picked Steve for Steve Austin, $6 million man. Yeah. And that was the way we were trying to fake being locals. I just want to fit in. Most immigrants who come here want to fit in. They don't want to stand out, but it's so hard not to. Mm -hmm. So that's really sort of how we ended up here and, and the, the roots of my arriving in, in Utah. How is that perspective, Basim, kind of influencing two things? One is what you're seeing surface in culture today that's coming to the surface, not only here in Utah, but nationwide with George Floyd's passing and murder, as well as leading the businesses that you do, I think, one of the things that always catches my eye when you post is this sense of seeing. Like, I really see you seeing your staff and inviting and celebrating diversity, different cultures. I just noticed you were celebrating one of your employees or staff becoming an American citizen. And the way that you take those micro moments to see clearly has a rootedness in your own ability to not have been seen, like what you were just saying, that idea to fit in. Can you just share, like, how are you bringing your upbringing into your model of leading, you know, others at work and certainly in our community today? Thanks for that question, Jennifer, for phrasing it that way. I sort of feel like there are two, two aspects, two dimensions of it. The first was me personally the experiences I had as an immigrant of brown skin, who's an Arab, an Arab American now, by no means can I say that I understand fully what an African, a black African American is experiencing today, because it's much harder to try to blend in very bluntly. I understand that because when I was a student at the University of Utah, and I had no access to a car, and my family being immigrants and poor, we had a 1979 Buick station wagon in a wonderful shade of brown with rust on it. We lived near the University of Utah because we were students, which was a rather affluent sort of, you know, upper middle class area back then and still is today. What that meant is, and I, I really tried to think about being objective about how I quantify this, I dare say that one in 10 times, one in 10 times that often, driving home typically from school, uh, where I was late uh, doing homework 
computer science engineering classes and coming home, I would get stopped by the police. And it was always, it was a different reason every time. And they were never rude. It just felt harassing. It felt after six, seven, eight times, and it's 1.30 in the morning and you've been doing homework and you're just freaking exhausted and you just want to get home. I literally found myself thinking, can I just make it home tonight without getting stopped for 40 minutes and having them ask for my driver's license and keep coming back and asking me questions and then just letting me sit here while I'm, I literally want to just go to bed. Again, that is nothing like the experiences of many young Black people in inner cities and, and bigger metro areas by any means. But it gave me enough perspective to know what that must feel like and to appreciate what that must feel like. And after a while, you have just had it. And you stop thinking of the police as your protectors. And they're protecting other people from you. That's what you end up feeling like. Well, I'm curious about tying it back to taking on the persona of Mark, right? And when when you took back the Sam and when you were being pulled over, like as you were new to the country and to the, into the state and to the experience, like, did you feel the inequity inside immediately or did it take some time for you to build up the awareness of, oh wait, other people seem to be treated differently? Like, how did you even come to the realization of there's injustice here that I'm on the receiving end of? That's a fair question. You know, I I think at that age, I mean, again, I was a teenager, so I really was very, uh, very insecure, very self-centered. It was all about me and my insecurities. And I was definitely aware, I think you feel, again, as an immigrant, non-Mormon who's poor and brown-skinned, you definitely feel lesser at school there are the groups of cool kids who are exactly the opposite of all of that. And then there's you and you have no way in, no way to really fit. So it wasn't really an awareness of everyone around me as much as it was my own insecurities. Uh, and I certainly had a few other foreign friends who were my friend from Kenya and my friend from Mexico. And we were the, the other immigrants essentially. And, and so I can also see how that ends up happening. Why, immigrants end up sort of having their own little mini ecosystem. Again, not a healthy thing. We need integration. We need all of us to live together to make this the America that we all believe it is. So I I certainly felt different and dare I say lesser for, for quite some time as a kid. Can you talk a little bit maybe about how that journey has evolved for you and if it has, but the assumption to make is that and certainly in our work supporting conscious leaders in business and in life, one of the core challenges that they deal with, we all deal with, is that insecurity, that feeling of not enough, that feeling of finding who I am and bringing that forth in whatever chosen outlet that may be at the time. And so as you're leading Atlas RTX, and maybe if you want to share a little bit about what your software company does and mind share ventures, that in that context, where does that insecurity lie as a leader? Like, is that does that rise for you not only in the context of the cultural 
shifting and unrest that we're experiencing, but in the form of leading a team, inspiring others to accomplish X, Y, Z, how would you say that that journey has evolved for you and taken expression today? I'm confident I can say that in large part, I've been able to overcome most of those insecurities. Now I'm it's more an acceptance of my own skin. It's a literally and figuratively, it's an acceptance of this is who I am. Make the most of it. Stop trying to identify as something you're not. It was really cathartic. And I know you just mentioned the, the Mark name that went away candidly uh, around two events that happened roughly the same time. The first was 9 11 happened in 2001, of course. And at the time I was in consulting and I traveled a lot. And I, I remember the experience of, I would have been uh, approaching 30 years old by then. I had sort of convinced myself I was an American at this point. You know, I, I lived here for a long time. I had multiple degrees from American universities. I was working for American companies, IBM and Oracle, Siebel, big companies. I was an American. I was like everyone else. And then 9-11 happened. And it was an immediate reminder that my Americanism apparently was only skin deep because suddenly I was an Arab. Suddenly I was them. And when I would get on a plane, the entire plane would go quiet. And it was a real shock to me because I, it sort of removed the facade from this Americanism that I'd created in my head. The second was the birth of my son, which happened just months later, nine months later. And I realized that my family and close friends were calling me by my real name, the Sam, but all of my business colleagues were calling me by my fake name, Mark, which we'll talk about the impact of that, by the way, in a second. And I sort of felt like I had a dual identity and that, do I really want my son to grow up thinking that his father is not proud of who he is and wanting to acknowledge that? Do I want that as the, the example? So in 2002, I went to my colleagues and again, I'm, I'm sure they thought I was trying to make a political statement and said, I want to use my real name. So if you don't mind calling me my real name, and that's a really tough and awkward thing to do after, you know, people having known you as, as some other, some other name. And that really felt like my coming out. And I feel like that was the moment upon which I've been able to build confidence over the last 18 years or so. I think that was sort of the, the bottom for me. That was the moment I said, I'm not going to be ashamed of this anymore. I am an Arab. I am an immigrant. I'm brown skinned and I'm fine with that. And I'm not going to hide it. And my name is Bassam. And that when you finally have that cathartic moment, it just allows you to finally build. It's an incredibly moving story. I'm so glad you shared that part. And I'm reflecting as you talk, I think as an aside, one thing we've struggled with over the last couple months in these conversations is the way plenty is wired and the way Jen and I are wired is to believe to have ultimate faith that things are working out for the better, that, that there's, there is enough for everyone. And yet, in times that are so tragic, like what we're living through, it can sound so insensitive to say it that way. So I just want to put kind of a big realization out before I make the next statement I'm about to say. I love that you shared that story. And it, what I'm struck with is everyone as a leader has their journey to become more of who they are, where I think injustice comes in for those of us 
especially who are white and privileged, is to realize that for people with privilege, that process of finding out who you really are can be uplifting and emboldening and people encourage you to do it where other people are compelled to hide and forced to deny and you know compelled to be something they're not and and that's one of the injustices i think we need to write is to to let everyone have that story of becoming who they are in a way that's uplifting in a way of their choosing and not a story of denying who who you have to be i don't know if that's making any sense but it is i love the i i really appreciate that you shared that and i love the journey there uh, thank you jeff thank you for and i totally i actually understand exactly what you're saying uh, times like these do make it hard to cover some of these topics to discuss them at all especially those of us who are not as impacted as others and, and but i actually think that this is what i'm so impressed by this time is that people are actually talking about it uh, things are happening now uh, we don't need to mention specifics but things are happening over the last few days that I would not have thought could be possible here for another decade or two. Because let's be candid, we've been around and we remember the Rodney King horrendous situation, which was something like 30 years ago. And it really, if we're being intellectually honest, if we think about the world back then versus now, I don't think we've changed that much. There hasn't been that much progress, sincerely, in, in terms of race relations. So it's, it's unfortunate that something has to change cataclysmically to really get us to finally say, let's talk about this and let's not just assume that this is just exceptional stuff that a few folks talk about from time to time. Um, so I really do hope that this is a moment when we can all come together and just start the healing. It's certainly not going to be fixed, but we can, we can at least start, start taking steps to, to heal the situation. Well, there certainly seems to be a convergence of forces that are coming together simultaneously to help society, humanity wake up. And it feels like we are in a period of the unraveling, of the undoing, of the reveal, so that we can create a more harmonious collaborative, equitable, unifying society, which in a lot of historic texts and different faiths have predicted or have talked about this great paradigm shift. And Jeff and I have shared this on business platforms for years around this idea of separation and hierarchical patriarchal structures that are literally, they perpetuate competition. They perpetuate differences. And that idea that we are not the same, regardless of where we come from, our cultural upbringing, our color of our skin, our viewpoint. And it's giving way. They're no, it's literally no longer sustainable. And we've heard about that. We've read about that. But as we are living through this time of convergence, it seems to be that there's a new invitation on offer that we collectively get to write for those of us who are interested in writing a different narrative. 
And part of that is education. Part of it is hearing stories like you are sharing with real honesty that helps to educate somebody who never had that experience of whether it's growing up here in Utah, white and Mormon and privileged or coming from a different place of the land. So I do think that the hopefulness of this convergent and the timing feels really auspicious and just so important. Like if we don't get our act together, then what, (laughs) right? If we don't wake up, then what? If we don't do something through action to change this, we're just going to continue living the 30 years past that you just articulated. Nothing's going to change. I couldn't agree more. I, I, um, I think the only thing I would add to that to sort of frame it the way I'm thinking about it is I don't believe that this country has a majority of racists. I don't believe that we're a racist country in general. I think those that label them or otherwise that would sort of fit that characterization would be very, very small. But likewise, there's very, very small, the number of people who are actively working on doing something about this. I think what we're finally hopefully doing is getting that big mass in the middle. Most people who are not racist, they're just busy with life, busy with their own, with their own problems. We all have problems. To finally say, you know, this is so important that it's more important than my own problems. This is so important that these minorities are getting treated this way, that I'm going to do something about it. And I think that's what's finally different. It's not just the activists. It's, it's that whole middle of the country that's hopefully empathizing and understanding this. Yeah. And the idea that you, there really can't be a middle to get to the change we want. We've been talking a lot internal to plenty about the book White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And she talks about this idea that that hopefully to our listeners now, and just to give people context, it's the second week of June when we're recording this. Hopefully by the time you're listening to it, you've heard this idea all over the place and are talking about it at dinner with your friends and you're back having dinner with your friends. And hopefully a lot of things have changed by the time you're listening to this. But D'Angelo talks about this idea that if you're not anti-racist, you're, you're racist. It's not enough to be not overtly racist doesn't get us done. And and as we're talking, I think I'm struggling a bit being an idealist with the idea that you're both talking about, which I see that, you know, to create true change, we need upheaval. And I, I can see that with my intellectual eyes, but man, I wish it wasn't so. <laughs> you know, I wish we could find a path to true change and true you know, sophisticated transformation that didn't require the shit hitting the fan all the time. And we were talking about this two months ago with how much coronavirus exposed inequities. And the example we keep using is, does it make sense to anybody that we had to have decisions about whether we keep schools open or not in a pandemic? Because school is the only way kids get fed? Like what's, who signed up for that system? And I totally agree with both of you that we're going through a massive wake up. I just feel, and I think it's what we needed, I guess. I just, there was such human cost to it. And I wish there was a path to change that didn't require such tremendous hardship. Absolutely. I know, I I suspect this wasn't the intended 
topic for, for the conversation, but I, you know, I think race and the black movement now absolutely warrants the focus, but even that sort of is a part of a bigger, bigger separation, a bigger divide that's been happening in this country around wealth inequity. And, uh, you know, we could go off for hours on that. So perhaps we don't bring that in today. But uh, I think that is something that we have to address and we all acknowledge it. And it gets worse every decade and we just acknowledge it and it gets worse. When are we going to do something about that that is systemic? There are white people who are also suffering greatly in this country for economic reasons, not for racial reasons. And I don't mean to minimize the black experience by that. Uh, My point is, we still have to address all of those other inequities. I certainly don't want to blame it on capitalism. I think it's tough to be an American and not be supportive of capitalism. But I think it's very clear that capitalism needs to be backed up and supported by mechanisms to ensure that we don't continually centralize wealth into a smaller and smaller and smaller percentage of of the population. Yeah. And to that point, yeah, I mean, maybe we'd love to have you back and talk more about (laughs) on episodes. Yeah. Let's get into that. (laughs) There's so much to talk about around that idea. I think one thing that triggered, you used a word blame and it feels like I will say personally, I'm really processing blame. Where am I placing judgment because I know intellectually judgment creates such separation. And so I see in that unrest, Jeff, that you're talking about the upheaval, there is a ton of blame and shame happening and solution that harmonious, equitable world that we want, I don't believe comes from that. Ultimately, it may be the match that's lighting the movement to create but the solutions not come, it never comes out of blame and shame because what that happens is it creates constriction, defense, right versus wrong, black versus white, left versus right thinking. I am curious about what our individual responsibility is in that participation. Meaning as you talk about like more of the middle waking up, more of the middle giving a shit about racism, And seeing our part in it, we can then as leaders ask ourselves, what has been my part in this? And I'll tell you, I have never identified as a racist ever. Like I can tell you that I do my best and have been wired to see people, treat people as equal, as whole human beings. And And yet when I go underneath it and I look at my own upbringing and I look at what I've said, I caught myself saying a phrase that I would say out of humor. And I'm actually nervous to even share this on air, but I'm going to say share it. You know, Park City is filled with incredible athletes. They're mostly white. And we play a lot of the Salt Lake Tongan teams in football, for example, and they're mostly not white. They're 50 pounds heavier, typically kids. And it's always been this, we have the fast, mighty, athletic white boys and against the, you know, brown, black, larger kids. And I would make a joke and say, you know, it's Park City. We're the white bread, organically fed, fast kids that are going to dominate, you know? And in my purity of 
intent wasn't ever thinking that that was a racist comment or I was trying to create harm with it. And now I'm thinking to myself like, oh, what good, whoever heard me at a sidebar saying that or making light of, you know, it, it participates in the separation. It participates in a judgment, true or not true, of culture, of, of strength, of assumption. And I think as leaders, my hope is that I will continue to peel back the layers to reveal more of the equitable, like the connective, and also the places I've been privileged that I haven't even realized I've been acting out in language in leadership so that I can be part of a better solution that I didn't realize I was participating in otherwise, if that makes sense. And my hope is we can all ask ourselves those questions, right? As we deepen the reveal, we take the layers of the onions off of how have we participated in this problem culturally. I want to go back just to give another shout out if people haven't heard or read or read an excerpt of White Fragility, because part of the thesis of that book is that white people often perceive race as happening to other people just because of how they brought up, which inherently, once you start to unpack it, is a racist thought, right? To say like, well, as a white person, I don't have a race. That, that's not true. You have a race too. And she uses that construct to start to say, we can, I think this goes back to your original point, Jen, about where does shame and guilt come into play and are they constructive and how do we use them for better, you know, as conscious leaders, where, where does that fit into things? And she uses that, that idea to say, look, there's a different way to define racism. It's not that overt hate that we grow up thinking kind of racist is. It's a systemic way of reinforcing privilege that one group has over other groups. And once you can say like, okay, well, if that's the definition of racist I use, then I can say, I am a racist. And then it starts to get easier to say, okay, well, do I want that? And how do I dismantle it? And so it's an interesting, I think she has an interesting agreement with your point about the personal shame doesn't work because so many people don't relate to it because they say, well, that's not me. I would never be racist. What Sam, you were saying earlier, but if we broaden our definition to say, no, it's this, it's this whole way that we reinforce privilege for some over others, then we have a place to start with about how we want to architect a different way forward. And then I think it gets to the other really important topics you were bringing up, Sam, about wealth inequities and how as capitalists do we reconcile those? I mean, really important conversations that I hope are coming in the next five years after we we start to find our way forward in common dialogue with what's right here in front of us. I want to sincerely commend you both on the degree of authenticity and, Jen, the degree of vulnerability that you just showed with that example. These are not topics that most people are comfortable talking about in private, let alone in a setting like this. I sincerely mean that. I, I commend you for, for tackling this. and to, to make you feel better, Jen, I... I while that's certainly surface level racism to, to sort of describe outside char characteristics, as a minority myself, I don't really care if someone points out that 
my nose is different or my skin is brown or that that's not what upsets me or makes me feel less. It's when the presumption is that I'm different inside that that's when it, to me, it's hurtful racism. That is when it's uh, because I look like this, I must believe that, or I must treat this type of person that way, or I must be uh, in the business world. You know, they're, they're, I'm going to, since in, in your spirit of being blunt about things, there was for some time in my industry, this sense that brown skinned people, especially those from India, they were technologists. They didn't do the business side. They only did the technical side. Then you're sort of cornered in there. I'm sorry, you, given your name, that's where I'm going to put you. I'm going to put you on that team. Uh, when we know that has no bearing whatsoever on one's identity or their preferences or the same sort of thing. So assuming that someone doesn't drive well because of the way they look or that to me is racism. To say that people from a certain ethnicity are larger that's a truism and not, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's not only not ill-intentioned, it's, it's true. There are bigger ethnicities and there are darker ethnicities. And I, again, I, I really feel like the, the realization that we're all the same inside is the theme that I can hope we can all, that we all just want our kids to have a better life and that we just want to be treated fairly and to be treated kindly and to be given opportunity and, and that that's what really matters. And that's what really all unites us. And I sincerely believe if we can just focus on that, we can also then remove this sense of tension around, oh my gosh, I just said this and I didn't mean to be racist, which I think a lot of sensitive, kind Caucasian people feel like you do. Yeah, thank you. I think that's part of the spirit of waking up is catching ourselves when we are making assumptions about one another and about ourselves and not asking, do I know for sure this is true? So literally catching ourselves when we're making the cultural conditioned assumption or the societal modeling assumption or whatever it is, because that can help, I think, get us to see, to kind of circle all the way back to your opening around really seeing others and really seeing ourselves. It has to start with seeing who we really are underneath, where we come from, what our intent is. Is it pure? Is it to do good? Is it to do harm? Is it to unify? Is it to separate? But as conscious leaders, like it's our obligation, in my opinion, our opinion, to wake up so that we can find that oneness, find that unity, that connection, that is the thread that makes us all who we are, regardless of our skin and culture and geography and place of living. I guess as we conclude, Basam, we have just a couple more minutes and clearly we could talk to you for days. So we'd love to have you back. Is there anything else you would like to share that's on your mind or on your heart or for other conscious leaders tuning in that you might like to, to offer to them before we conclude? I'm so grateful for, for the time today. I think the one thought I have that I'd love to share with uh, with your listeners that I I feel like my friends have experienced in, in talking with me and my experiences with them is um, not to be ashamed that you weren't aware 
of what was happening, what is happening, and to focus more on what can be done now. And I think those of us who are in positions of privilege owe it to everyone else in society to do something about it by acting. I think what you're doing here is fantastic because you're giving a voice. You know, as a Caucasian person, you sometimes ask, well, what can I do to help this race situation? I think we should all give a voice to Black America. Let their voices be heard and convey that message. And I think that's a big way that we can make a difference. So that's one way we can act. I think another way we can act is to uh, sincerely question how we hire, uh, sincerely question with whom we socialize, and uh, are we considering race in that at all? And just being intellectually honest with ourselves, are we making presumptions based on race? There are a lot of racial minorities who are incredibly talented, who are currently overlooked throughout corporate America. I want them all to call me because we, we have a place for them. And I think the more of us we do that, when we get to a point where it becomes a moot point, we will have won, but we're far from that. But thank you so much for the time today. I love that point. So we're also going to have you back to talk about the future of artificial intelligence and its role in business, and maybe its role in helping us create a more equitable world. I'd be really, really fascinated to have that conversation. As you were talking, I just want to share with people who are listening, we have a leadership retreat called Lantern. And one of the things we talk about is that once you see the light, it's not acceptable to let other people sit in the dark. So I do think we're getting to a world where on this issue, at least there's no middle and there shouldn't be and we all have to do better. The idea of more inclusive hiring, that strikes right at the heart of plenty. That's something that we have to get our heads around and our hearts around and figure out how we find people that we haven't found before. Because I, I don't even think people are being overlooked. I think people aren't being seen at all. That's something that we can start to address. It's just a pleasure to have had you here. So thank you. And thank you if you're listening for joining us, you know what we're going to say. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give us a positive review. We'd really appreciate it. But Sam, where can people find out more about your businesses? Where can we send them? I love to write. It's my outlet. And if they go to my name, Bassam, B-A-S-S-A-M, last name Salem, like Salem Witch Trials, BassamSalem.com. I try to write about things that I care about. Lovely. Thank you so much for being here. We can't wait to continue the conversation and good luck with everything you're doing. Thank you both. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for tuning in. Join the conversation and learn more at plentyconsulting.com.